0: We pray now as you gather us around your word that you would help us see your rule over our lives. Not just not just on Sundays, not just as we gather together, but every moment, every second of our lives. We ask that you'd speak your word through my all too imperfect and feeble lips to the people you've gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we are starting a brand new series here at Hillside. If you were with us for the last four weeks, you know that we looked at the concept of what it means to be a resident alien, a phrase that um, is used throughout the scriptures, but especially uh, in Peter's first epistle as he is addressing people that are in some sense or another dispersed and feel like exiles wherever they live. And he says, in fact, that that will be kind of the way it is for Christians throughout history as long as we live here in this place before the second coming, that there will be this tension that we feel as resident aliens. And so uh, Pastor Bruce and I talked about that from various angles in relation to government and in relation to our family, in relation to work. Uh, And today we are going to start a new series in which we look at beginnings. We're just going to be looking at beginnings in Scripture. And so I know this will be a big shocker to you, but yes, that means we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 today. Without further ado, let's go ahead and hear what it has to say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the great, greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. End of reading. In the beginning, God... If you can believe those words, those few simple words, then the rest of what you read in this entire book that we call the Holy Bible will be no problem for you. I heard Mike McIntosh, a preacher on K-Wave radio, once say that a few years back. And if you think about it, as simple as it may sound, he's right. If this statement is true, that God created the heavens and the earth, that in the beginning God, then all the difficulties with with time and events and miracles and strange happenings and seeming contradictions in the rest of this story of the Bible are really no problem whatever to deal with. The flood? Sure, God created the heavens and the earth. The parting of the Red Sea? Yeah, He's God. He rules over every part of His creation. The virgin birth, the perfect life of Jesus, the many miracles, the dying for our sins as an act of atonement, the resurrection from the grave? Yeah, why not? I mean, He's the creator of heaven and earth. He can do what He wants. These words, in the beginning God, set the stage, the tone for everything we will read after them. And yet, how we either don't know or forget just how unique these words really are. The fact is, plenty of other ancient religions have accounts of the creation of the world too. But it, they're nothing like the Bibles, let me assure you. In fact, it, it's obvious upon reading just even a few lines that they are, they are myth, they are mythology. They are mythology. I mean, for one thing, there are always many gods in the other creation accounts that have cropped up, and, and in fact, they, they aren't too happy with having to compete with each other in the heavenly realms. They fight, and they, they kill, and they're sexually promiscuous. In, in one famous ancient account, El, the supposed father of the gods, dethrones his own father, but also castrates him. He slays his own favorite son and cuts off his daughter's head. This was who many in the ancient world believed the creator of the universe to be. Another story comes from the ancient Babylonian creation story, Enuma Elish. In this story, one of the three original parents of the gods, Tiamat, is identified as the ocean. Marduk, a younger god who becomes the chief Babylonian deity, kills her. Here's the lines that describe the initial creation of the world. Quote, He split her open like a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky therewith as a roof. Half of her corpse was used to form the sky, the other to make the earth. Now, I could go on. It gets even more outlandish from there. But contrast that kind of thing with the simplicity of the account we have today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first line of God's grand narrative. What does he want us to know? How does does God bring us into his story? Well, the first thing he wants us to know is that he has provided a setting for humanity. He's provided a setting for this creation. In other words, God wants us to know that Carl Sagan was wrong when he said the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. No, that is not the case. There was a beginning to all that is around us. There was a time when there was no things, and then there became a time where there was some things. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith... We understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In theology, it's referred to by a fancy phrase, creation ex nihilo, just means creation out of nothing, that God was able to do that. There was a starting point to our universe. Now there was a time, back when Carl Sagan, the famous scientist, made that statement, that a large consensus of the scientific community actually did believe that the universe was probably just eternal, that it always existed. But since that time, of course, there's been numerous scientific discoveries that, in fact, lead to now the opposite consensus in the scientific community. In fact, the vast majority, if not almost all, of the scientific community believes now that the universe, in fact, had a beginning. We know this because of experiments done by a few different scientists. Some years back, a scientist named Alan Sandage carried out a study of 42 galaxies, ranging out in space as far as 6 billion light years from us with a 200-inch telescope. And his measurements indicated that the universe was expanding more rapidly in the past than it is today. What does that suggest? If it's expanding, then that means it's expanding from a specific point way back in time. And then two scientists named Penzias and Wilson discovered that the the universe has low-level radiation from some sort of past catastrophe that looks like a a giant fireball. This is referred to as the, the radiation echo. Now, why do I bring all this up to you? You know, if you know me at all, that I'm not a science guy and I don't pretend to be a science guy from the pulpit. But I bring it up because contrary to what you might hear out there in the world, the biblical account of a beginning to the universe is not silly or fictitious sounding like the examples that I just mentioned from the ancient accounts. But frankly, actually kind of matches what we know about the universe. When did all this happen? I don't know. How long ago did it all happen? I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't matter at all for the purposes of our story. If God thought it was so important for us to know the exact time that all this took place, well then I would assume that he actually would have included it in his story, but he didn't. The most important thing that he wants us to know is that he is creator and everything else is Creation. That leads to the second thing that we see in our story that God gives in this beginning, and that is a protagonist. He gives us a protagonist. In other words, the author and main character of this story has been introduced in the very first verses before anything was God. Now let me just repeat that first part again. This is God's story. He is the main character. Yes, there's men throughout the story. Yes, there's plenty of interesting parts that they play. But every person in the narrative of the Bible is merely a supporting actor in God's grand story. This is his universe. What is this God like? What what does this tell us? Well, we, we might not see it clearly initially here, but it is there in the very beginning chapters of Genesis. And that is, we know from the rest of the Bible's testimony that God is, is a relational being, that, that in fact we see hints of it in the text, that God is, is united, He's one, but also plural, that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He is triune. Therefore, He is a God of relationship. Because forever, God is related perfectly with His Son and, His, and the Spirit. But as you unravel the rest of the pages of Scripture, you're going to find out that, that God is in fact self-existent, that He's self-sufficient, that He's eternal, that He's immutable. That means that He's unchanging. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Everywhere present, faithful, good, just, merciful, gracious, loving, sovereign, and holy, holy, holy as the angels cry out day and night. Psalm 90 verse 2 says before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. He is the first cause outside of space and time. He is the Lord of every molecule in the universe and it is all held together by his son Jesus Christ and for Christ and through Christ. With all this being said, what's truly astonishing and amazing is how easily we forget it. How prone we are to exchange the glory of the immortal God. To be in awe of who God is and exchange that awe for far lesser things to give our worship and adoration and time to far lesser things. It really is a result of what will happen in just a couple chapters from what I read in Genesis 3, where humanity makes a fine mess of this perfect creation of God's. Though he said it was very good at the end of chapter 1, we do our best to make it oh so bad. And so, rather than giving our devotion to the God of love, we give our devotion to the God of illicit pleasures. Our devotion is not completely to a God of mercy and grace, but to a God who wants to beat us into submission with legalistic rules and regulations wanting us to walk around feeling insanely guilty all the time because of our various shortcomings. We need to recognize again, and this is why it's so important to go back to the beginning, the importance of who is the main character here. He is creator, we are creatures and we're free to be creatures. You know, you ever think about the fact that the thing that, that leads humanity into the mess they're in in Genesis 3, when, when they fall into sin, the supposed fall, which really is like a, it's actually like a reach or even more of a dive into sin. Like, I mean, they, they didn't just like, oopsie. No, they, they chose. They wanted that fruit. They wanted to become like God. But think about what they're tempted with. They're tempted to eat from the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, humanity's greatest temptation is to want a little morality, to want a little control in the game, to want to be God themselves, and tired of being limited as a creature, wanting to be in charge, wanting to be the creator. And you see this from our youngest days. This is the problem. We fail to recognize our dependence on the protagonist, the main character. I would imagine that, that, especially those of you who have kids, but maybe you remember when you were a kid, are familiar with the book or the movie from Dr. Seuss called Horton Hears a Who. Uh, I, I, being a father of three, have read that book or seen that movie oh, so many times. Oh, so many times. But, of course, the story has a great point to it. At least in the the film adaptation, Horton, the elephant, comes across a, a small little flower, and on that flower there is a tiny, tiny little speck. And Horton picks up the flower with his trunk and grasps it tightly. And from that speck, amazingly, Horton hears a voice. It is the voice of a who from Whoville which exists on this tiny little speck. This speck that is barely visible to the human eye contains the lives of countless Who's and they are all hanging in the balance on Horton's trunk. They're entirely dependent on Horton for their existence even though most of them aren't aware of it at all. That is us. That is me. That leads to the third thing we see in this text that God wants us to know about the beginning. And that is he gives us an action. He is busy creating. He is busy doing something. And this creation was made for the purpose of humanity's well-being, for you and I to flourish. At first, we're told the earth is formless and void, or or we could translate the word just simply empty, chaotic, completely uninhabitable for humanity. But we're also told the Spirit of God is there hovering. And wherever the Spirit of God hovers, there is order brought out of chaos, there is life brought out of death. And so, what does God do? He begins to form and he begins to fill. The first three days, he spends forming. He separates the light from the darkness, forming day and night. The second day, he forms the the sky and and the rivers, the lakes and the streams. The the third day, he forms the, the land with all the vegetation and the seas, again, separating certain things, organizing them, placing them, forming the earth to make it habitable for us. But what happens the fourth through sixth day? Well, he takes away the emptiness of the earth and he fills it. Corresponding with the first day, on the fourth day, God fills the day and night with sun, moon, and stars. The fifth day, God fills what he formed on the second day. He fills the sky with birds and insects. He fills the waters with fish and other sea creatures. And the sixth day, he fills the land with what he Uh, with what he creates on the sixth day, both mammals and human beings. And at the end of that, God says, it's very good. It's what I wanted. Behind the creation account, we see a God who designs. And this isn't merely something we hold because the Bible tells us so. But again, it's something that we can even look to science to see evidence of. Francis Collins, the head of the Genome Project once wrote, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, and I could go on, that have precise values, if any one of those constants were off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it is. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Even Stephen Hawking who famously came out as an atheist once said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as an act of a God who intended to create beings like us. End quote. And so what this means is that we live in this sort of paradoxical place. On the one hand, we just acknowledge that we are secondary, we're creatures, we're small in comparison to the things of the universe, and yet because God has so intimately designed us, we are eternally significant. What this means is that your life actually does have purpose, that what you do matters. C.S. Lewis once said, No philosophical theory which I have yet come across is as radical, is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis that, quote, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. It's true, folks. If you can believe these first few words, in the beginning, God, you can believe everything that follows afterward. And yet, of course, this is only the beginning of the story. It doesn't take long before the creation rebels against the Creator, as we've mentioned. It really is out of worship to themselves that they'll seek to to run away from Him. In this story, it will appear that paradise is lost, that that which God has called very good has been marred beyond all recognition and by all salvaging. but I, I, can't, I can't end this message about the beginning by only staying at the beginning. I, I have to at least give you a hint about what comes after. What comes after is a story of such incredible love that frankly, there's a whole lot of people that find it hard to believe. That though God created the world very good and we did everything we could to mar it and scar it and mess it up, God is so in love with this creation of His that He simply refuses to give up on it. The rest of the story will go on to show that God is going to go to the utter lengths in order to restore that which He's created at the very beginning. That he is in fact going to be able to say once again about everything that happens in this place as heaven will come down to earth that it is once again very good. That the death and the sickness and the destruction and the pain and the struggle and the depression and all the things that we feel burdened by and weighted down by are going away. And the reason they're going away is because God, in His great love for you and I, decides He will take all of those burdens upon Himself in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Instead of holding us accountable for messing up that which He created, God will hold Himself accountable. God will absorb the punishment that the, that the, that the creation deserves and in turn offer forgiveness that the creation desperately needs. And so yes, the beginning of the story is quite dramatic. We have a framework, he's creature, we're cr- or he's creator, we're creature. But but the end of the story, the end of the story is even more dramatic because the creator will do everything necessary to redeem the creature. And that is why we celebrate His Lordship over our lives today. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray and I ask that You would remind us of our place over and over again. It is in fact good news that we are creatures. It's good news that it's not, not incumbent upon us to hold the world up. It's not incumbent upon us to fix everything. We're far too limited. Far too finite. And so you call your creatures again to recognize their place. You say, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. O Father, build the faith in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to actually believe it. To leave the burdens on you. Because you can handle it. We give you praise and thanksgiving for the links that you go to in order to reconcile us to yourself. And thus we pray the prayer our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done.